Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Would you illumine now the preaching of your word to teach us and to guide us in your holy ways? Reveal yourself to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your nature. Speak to us now, for your servants listen, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles now to our sermon text, continuing in our series in Colossians, we're looking this morning at chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, page 983 in the Pew Bibles, and just to get a little running start and understand the context, we'll begin reading in verse 13 this morning. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. People come from all over the world to visit New York City. And one of the great attractions of New York is Broadway, where people come to see a Broadway musical. A musical is a unique sort of performance where There's ordinary dialogue, people interacting in regular speech, just talking to one another. But when the drama intensifies, when the emotions well up, they break out into song. We see something a bit like that happening in this passage before us. Curiously, it's not common practice in most English translations to set this passage in poetic verse. But in the standard Greek editions, it's always printed in poetic verse, in poetic lines. And all scholars agree that this passage is poetry. Really, it's in the form of a hymn with two stanzas. Now, there's some debate whether Paul is drawing on an early Christian hymn that was already in existence, and he's adapting it, molding it a bit for his purposes, or what I think is more likely, that he may have some traditional material that's already in existence, but I think he's mostly composing it himself as he writes this letter because it is so tailored to the needs of those he's writing to. to. But why? Why does Paul so suddenly break out into song as he is writing to the Colossians? Because he has come to matters of utmost importance, and he wants his readers to truly understand this message 
and to remember it. And that's the function of of poetry, of, of hymnody. He wants it to penetrate their hearts. He wants them to remember and to know this message. So let me summarize this message in terms of one central truth and one application of that truth. The central doctrinal truth here is that Christ is supreme. Paul establishes this truth in two parallel stanzas in this hymn, in which he shows first Christ's absolute supremacy in the original creation, and then he parallels that with his absolute supremacy in the new creation, his work of redemption. Christ is supreme. He is preeminent before creation all the way to the end of history, to the new heavens and the new earth. Then there's one central application that flows from this truth. Because he is supreme in all things, therefore he is all sufficient for you in this life and the next. He is all you need, the supreme and therefore all sufficient Savior and Lord. And this was significant for the Colossians who were being tempted away from Christ by false teachers. These false teachers did not necessarily deny Christ outright. But they said, you need other things as well. He is not enough. He is not sufficient. You need extra rules. You need the help of angels. Now, Paul's going to confront those things more directly in chapter 2. But here he simply shows Christ is greater. He is everything. He is all you need. So we'll look at our passage in these two stanzas of the hymn, seeing first the supremacy of Christ in the original creation, and second, the supremacy of Christ in the new creation. And we'll always keep in mind that application. Therefore, he is all sufficient. He is all you need. So first, we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the original creation. Verse 15, we begin, he is the image of the invisible God. Now this language of image, it's introduced at the very beginning of the Bible, when God says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So at the very beginning, man is created in the image of God, to reflect, to display what God is like within this world. But of course, that's not exactly what Paul is talking about here. He is saying that in contrast to mankind, we who are created, we who are created images of the uncreated creator God, Jesus Christ is the original, the underived, the unqualified, uncreated image of God. As Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the uncreated image, the one who we will also see in a moment is the creator God. To say without qualification, he is the image of the invisible God is a bold statement describing Christ's deity. Now, this parallel between, on the one hand, mankind as the created image of God, and on the other, the eternal Son as the uncreated image of God, this parallel is actually what makes the incarnation 
possible, what makes possible for Jesus to take on human flesh, to come down and become man. Because man is created in the image of God, it becomes possible for this divine image to take on human nature. And so, that's what happens at the Incarnation, what we celebrate each year at Christmas. The uncreated image, the Son, unites himself to the created image, human nature, as he is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's one reason we sang a Christmas hymn this morning. Great is the mystery, and yet does this not help us to peer a little deeper into the wondrous mystery of the Incarnation? And yet here at the outset of verse 15, here at the very beginning of this great hymn in verses 15 through 20, I don't think Paul is yet speaking about the Incarnation because creation comes next. Here he's actually speaking before creation. And so I believe what he has in mind here is that Christ as the image of the invisible God, he is the image even before creation itself, even when nothing else existed except God alone, even then within the mysterious inner workings of the Trinity, the Son reflected the Father back to himself as the eternal image of God. And of course, he continues to do so after creation, now and forever. So first, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Second, Christ's supremacy is further established in the next statement in verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is not teaching that Jesus was materially born before creation, much less that he is a created being. If this were the case, how could he be the one by whom all things were created, as it says in verse 16, the next verse? And then it'll say in verse 17 that he is before all things. No, rather, this term, firstborn, It is a title which describes the rank of Jesus. In the ancient world, the firstborn was the primary heir. And in a royal house, that meant he was the one who would succeed to the throne, who would reign in his father's place. We have an example of this word, firstborn, used in this sense in Psalm 89, 27, where describing David, the Lord says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. If you recall, David was not physically, literally, the firstborn. He was actually the youngest of his brothers. But here, the term is used not in that literal sense, but in the figurative sense. He is made the firstborn in the sense that he is elevated to the highest rank. He is made the highest of the kings, as Psalm 89 says. And then it goes on, Psalm 89 says, that his throne will be established forever. It's in this sense that Christ has the title of firstborn over all creation. Because he is the ruler, he is the heir, far more than even Adam and Eve. He is given dominion over all creation. We'll look at verse 16 in a moment, but jumping ahead to verse 17, that's where we're told he is before all things. The logic here is very simple. Because Christ exists before all created things, he is superior to them. He comes first. He has authority over them. And because he comes first, therefore he is greater. And of course, this isn't just a small difference of degree. Jesus is on a different level of existence. Creator versus creature. 
And so again, we see Christ's supremacy even before creation. And then we come to the highlight of this first stanza, his work in creation. If you look at verse 16, you'll see there are three prepositions to describe Jesus' work in creation. At the beginning of the verse, we read, For by him all things were created. He is the agent of creation. And then at the end, all things were created through him and for him. We could rephrase this by saying he is the beginning, the middle, and the end of all things, all created things. This is confirmed as we read earlier in John 1.3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We also see it in Hebrews 1.2. His son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. While Christ created all things, certain things are selected out, certain things are highlighted here in Colossians. First, Paul highlights both heaven and earth. Second, both things visible and invisible. Now, these two pairs, they go together showing that all things, it really means all things. Both the things we see and the things we cannot see. The things we know and understand and the things that are beyond us, the things that are incomprehensible to us. And then he gives us four examples of invisible heavenly things. Whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. Now, it may not be immediately obvious to you, but the original audience would have recognized these as the titles used in the Jewish literature of that day to refer to four different ranks of angels. And these could include both good angels and evil angels, that is, demons. Now, Paul includes these very intentionally because the Colossians were being misled by those false teachers that emphasize the importance of angels, even leading them to worship these angels, according to chapter 2.18. Most of you today probably don't think about angels all that much. But in the ancient world, steeped as it was in paganism and polytheism and idolatry, there was a strong temptation for monotheistic Jews to look outside of the one true God for spiritual power. And if you think about it, outside of God, the most powerful spiritual beings in creation are angels. And so, that's where these false teachers had turned. And they were telling others to turn, to look to angels. Now, Paul refutes these things more directly in chapter 2, but here his message is simply this. Jesus is greater than all the ranks of angels, for he created them, and he rules over them. You don't need to seek the help of angels because you can go straight to the source of all power and authority. You can go to Jesus Christ himself. You know the one who created angels and rules over angels. Why bother with angels? Notice how Paul also emphasizes that creation is not only by Christ and through Christ, it is for Christ. He is the end and goal of creation. All will result in his praise and glory. And so Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Not only did he create all things, but furthermore, in him all things hold together. Verse 17. 
Christ is the one who sustains and upholds all created things. As it says in Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, deism sees the universe as a giant clockwork mechanism. That God simply winds up, he sets in motion, and then he steps away from it and lets it run on his own, and he has nothing more to do with it. But that is not the biblical view. That is not what the scriptures teach. The only reason creation continues to exist and the laws of nature, nature are upheld, the only reason you don't disintegrate into dust and ashes is because Jesus Christ holds all things together. These are marvelous claims to make, showing us that Jesus Christ is absolutely supreme in all of creation, from creating it in the beginning to upholding it constantly. But what does this mean for you and me? Of course, you ought to worship him. And if he is all supreme, then he is also all sufficient. Now the temptation for you is probably not to, like the Colossians, to go and serve and worship angels, but a similar dynamic may often be at work in our lives. What are the thrones, the dominions, the rulers and authorities that frighten you? In other words, when do you feel out of control? When you feel out of control, where do you turn? When you're anxious or afraid, do you look to something or someone outside of Christ? As powerful as any created thing appears or as overwhelming as any situation seems, Christ is greater and he rules over all. F.F. Bruce writes, For those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that their Redeemer is also creator, ruler, and goal of all. And so in all things, we look to Christ. And the first stanza, it teaches us that Jesus Christ is supreme before and in creation. The second teaches us the supremacy of Christ in the new creation. In verses 18 through 20, we learn that when Christ's creation fell into sin and rebellion, he did not abandon it, but he entered into it to rescue, to restore, to make all things new. So we see first in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. This is where Paul introduces this theme of new creation. The church is the gathering of those who have been born again, who have been recreated in Christ. We saw last time how God has brought us out of the dominion of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. Here Paul introduces this familiar imagery of church, the church as Christ's body, with Jesus as the head of the body. And there are two aspects to this position of Christ as the head of the body head of the church. The first is that as the head, Christ, of course, has authority to rule over the church. He is the king. He is the master. He is the Lord. And this lines up with all that we've seen in this passage, that Christ is supreme. He has dominion in all creation, so he also has dominion over those he has brought into his new creation, those who have received redemption in the church. But secondly, Christ as the head of the church is the one who sustains, who gives life to the church. 
And so in Colossians 2.19, Christ is described as the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. And so Christ's headship over the church is certainly never to be seen as some sort of harsh authoritarianism. But the leadership, the oversight, the care, and the provision that the body needs for its protection and growth, he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5.29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now Paul, certainly here, he could have spoken of Christ as the king over his kingdom, but I believe he chose this metaphor of the head of his body, because he wanted to emphasize this second aspect of the metaphor, Christ's loving nourishment and care for his body. While the head rules, it is also united to the body, just as you are united to Christ through faith. And so in the church, we enjoy union and communion with Christ. We know his love and his care for us as he nourishes and builds up his church. So we see first here, Christ is head over the new creation body, of the church. Second, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This language of the beginning, it reminds us of his work in creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus, of course, he was there at the beginning of the original creation. But now his coming has marked a far greater beginning, the beginning of redemption accomplished, the beginning of the last days, the beginning of Resurrection life seen in his resurrection as the firstborn from the dead. This is now the second time we see this language of firstborn. Just as he is the firstborn over all creation, so here we learn that he is the firstborn of the new creation by his resurrection from the dead. And as the text says, the result of this is that he is preeminent in all things, in creation old and new. He is not only the author of all things, but now the restorer of all things. Now, what does this mean for you? As 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits implies that this is just the beginning of a great harvest to come. And as Romans 8, 29 says, he is the firstborn among many brothers. Are you part of this new creation? Are you trusting in the resurrected one? Are you united to him by faith? As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so when you believe in the gospel, Christ gives you the gift of eternal life. And that eternal life, it begins now. You are already a new creation in Christ. You already have been raised with him. But then, when Christ returns, you receive that glorious resurrection body. That is when the full harvest will be brought in. But Christ will always remain the firstborn from the dead, the one who achieved that victory over sin and death and granted this gift of eternal resurrection life. Verses 19 and 20 then give us two more reasons why Christ is supreme in the new creation. The first reason, 
for all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's put similarly in Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Clearly this is referring to Christ's incarnation. So it's parallel to what we saw back in verse 15. Christ as the eternal uncreated image of God. And here Paul's describing this incarnation in striking language. He's drawing on the language of God's presence indwelling the temple in the Old Testament in which the glory of God was pleased to fill the temple with his fullness. The God who was omnipresent, who fills all in all, whom the heavens and even the highest heaven cannot contain, came down to dwell bodily in Jesus Christ. This is how John describes it, as we read earlier in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Because he is the image of the invisible God with all the fullness of God dwelling within him, he is able to make God known to us. He is God himself in our midst, the temple incarnate. So John writes, no one has ever seen God. However, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, John 1.18. So F.F. Bruce writes, to say that Christ is the image of God is to say that in him the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. That in him the invisible has become visible. And so when Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 8 through 9. And so if you would behold God, then look to Jesus Christ, for he is all the fullness of God for you. He is all you need. This brings us to the final reason. He is supreme in the new creation because it pleased God to reconcile all creation to himself through Christ. Reconciliation means to take two parties who are alienated from each other and to restore them to fellowship to turn war into peace, to turn dissonance into harmony, to make enemies into friends. And here we see that the only one who can restore peace between God and his creation is his son, Jesus Christ. How did Jesus accomplish this? By making peace through the blood of his cross. This, of course, refers to his sacrificial death. He who created all things took on lowly human flesh. And he lived the perfect life and he died the perfect death, shedding his blood on the cross in our place to bear God's wrath, which we deserve for our sin. Of course, we tend to think of Christ's work on the cross being done in order to reconcile God's enemies to him, making sinners into saints, into friends, into family. And in order to save those who put their trust in him, and it certainly does that. But we see that far more is accomplished by Christ's death in terms of reconciliation. As Paul highlights here, 
The reconciling power of his death and resurrection is cosmic in scope, embracing all created things, whether on earth or in heaven. But how does this work? While this reconciliation of all things, it sounds marvelous, we must, not be, we must be careful not to draw a false conclusion here. This is not saying that there is universal salvation. That would contradict the clear teaching of other places in Scripture. The basics of the gospel are always true. You must embrace Jesus Christ by faith in order to be saved. Otherwise, you remain under God's wrath. But because Christ is the Prince of Peace and his kingdom of peace will extend over all things, it's also true that all will be made to have peace with God. But what does that mean for those who refuse to trust in him, who continue in rebellion? Jesus still makes peace, but he will do so by triumphing over all his enemies. According to Colossians 2.15, on the cross, Christ triumphed over the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Now, this is referring to those fallen angels, the forces of darkness, which Christ defeated at his death and will finally conquer completely in his return. And the same applies to all those who do not trust in Christ. So there will be peace, whether that is peace established because a person receives grace from Christ or because he is conquered and receives justice. And then the new creation that Christ began in his first coming, and will be, it will be brought to consummation at his second coming. And we're given a glorious picture of this in Revelation 21. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The new creation, which is already breaking into this world in the church, it will spread over all things. It will encompass all creation, the new heavens and the new earth, and we will be with the Lord forever. This passage, it is a glorious summary of the greatness, the majesty, the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you behold him in all his glory, it is right to bow down and worship him. In fact, the very words of this passage are an appropriate hymn of worship. Because he is supreme over all things, in creation and in redemption, you can trust him and you can rest in him for everything you need in this life and the next. You don't need to go anywhere else For Christ is sufficient. He is all you need. In fact, there is no one else you can turn to to make you right with God. For Christ is the only mediator between man and God. He is the perfect and all-sufficient Savior. Trust in Him for the big things, matters of salvation and eternal life. But also know that He is sovereign over the little things as well. Since he is upholding every atom of the universe, he is in control of it all. And he is attentive to your prayers. He is working all things out according to his plans for the good of his people. So rest in him. Cry out to him. For he is not only your great and exalted God, supreme over all things, but he is also your loving shepherd who so humbly gave himself for you on the cross. Hallelujah. 
What a savior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are in awe to read this glorious description of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. To see who he is as he reveals to us who you are. As he is the image of you, the invisible God, revealing you to us in all your glory. We praise and exalt the risen Christ, who not only created all things, but also will be glorified in all creation. And he restores all things and reconciles all things to you on that final day. We praise you that he is the firstborn from the dead. And because he is risen, we have new life and we wait with eager expectation for the day of our resurrection. Father, we pray for strength to live faithful lives, to endure as we wait for Christ's return. And until then, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come soon. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.